everyone, and welcome to the Paraflight podcast brought to you by the Paraflight Society. I'm Esther, and I'm here today with Professor Francis Dickey. Hello, Francis. Hi. Glad to be with you today. Thank you very much for accepting our invitation. It's really great to have you here today. Um, so for those who don't know uh, who she is, um, so Professor Dickey works on modernist literature, especially on poetry and the arts, and teaches at the University of Missouri, so all the way from the US. Um, she has been president of the International T.S. Eliot Society and is currently an editor of the T.S. Eliot Studies Annual. She has widely published, um, but we could uh, single out some of her most outstanding publications, such as the modern portrait poem from Dante Gabriel Rossetti to Ezra Pound from 2012. And she has also co-edited volume three of the complete prose of T.S. Eliot, Literature, Politics, Belief, um, 1927-1929, and the Edinburgh Companion to the uh, T.S. Eliot and the Arts. She has also worked on the correspondence of T.S. Eliot and Emily Hale and was featured in the BBC documentary T.S. Eliot Into the Wasteland. So I guess that uh, by this point, um, many of our listeners might, might be wondering, uh, what's the connection between T.S. Eliot and the Paraphalites? And that's exactly what you've been kind of researching about um, quite recently, right? Um, and so that's why you're here today, of course. Exactly. Thank you so much, Esther, for that introduction. Um, and talking about T.S. Eliot and the Pre-Raphaelites is one of my favorite topics. And I feel so fortunate to have an audience um, who really knows something about the Pre-Raphaelites and especially um, one of Eliot's most important influences, Dante Gabriel Rossetti. Um, and it's it's really not known at all um, what an important role Rossetti played in Eliot's life. And, and when I say Rossetti it, today, I'm just gonna be referring to Dante Gabriel Rossetti. Um, although I think we could do a whole nother podcast on um, Eliot and, and Rossetti's sister, Christina. Oh, that would be um, lovely. <laughs> But um, yeah, El uh, Rossetti had a presence in Eliot's life from the age of 14 until um, at least the end of his poetic career with four quartets. And um, it was through Rossetti, he said himself, that he awakened to poetry. Um, and many of his like most fundamental features in his poetry, I think, um, can, can be understood through this influence. Um, but I, I just kind of want to start by setting the stage um, you know, who was Eliot at the age of 14 and, and what was his surround, what, you know, what, what was his life like at that time? So the year would be 1902. Um, and Eliot is the youngest of five children in a large Victorian home in the heart of urban St. Louis. And pictures of his home show all the classic features of a Victorian home, overstuffed velvet covered furniture, heavy oak woodwork, a tall grandfather clock in the hallway, a long banister that the children like to slide down on. Basically gilded age comforts, very dark, um, spacious, <laughs> homey. Um, but outside things are very different. Uh, at the turn of the century, St. Louis was the fourth largest city in the United States with a population of almost a million. And the air was black with soot from chimneys and trains. Streetcars made a deafening rattle um, as they ran throughout the city. And in the summer, the stench from sewage and animal rendering factories was overpowering. The Elliott family shared their block with boarding houses, a livery stable, a large entertainment venue, and a girls' school, as well as other well-to-do families. And their block was actually racially integrated, as well as... Um, containing immigrants from uh, throughout Europe. Uh, so it was a, a very polyglot place. Yeah, for sure. At the end of their block, a row of bars led to <laughs> Union Station, uh, which was the main train station basically leading out west uh, for everyone who was who was migrating to the, to, to the American West. And this row of bars uh, led to a, a a red light district, which was not at all far from the Elliott home. And I think that that, that really uh, shaped his childhood quite a bit. And it, in fact, St. Louis in 1902 was not that different from London in the 1860s. Culturally vibrant, economically divided, 
and the streets full of dangers and possibilities. Um, Elliot was very protected as a child. He said that his parents raised him in a glass jar and he had few playmates. Um, so that's the, that's the setting where we find him in 1902. And all poets have stories to tell about their awakening to poetry. And Elliot told his story um, at least four times in his published writing. Um, he said that at the age of 14, he burst into life from reading Dante Gabriel Rossetti's The Blessed Demoiselle and Edward Fitzgerald's Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam, which was a favorite of the pre-Raphaelites. Mm -hmm. So um, he actually told this, I'm going to just tell you a little bit about the this moment as Eliot described it. So he first told the story in 1919, um, referring to himself kind of obliquely as a boy. He writes in... Um, the education of taste. The first step in education is not a love of literature, but a passionate admiration for some one writer, and probably most of us recalling our intellectual pubescence can confess that it was an unexpected contact with some one book or poem, which first by apparent accident revealed to us our capacities for enjoyment of literature. The mind of a boy of 14 may be deadened by Shakespeare, and may burst into life on collision with Omar or the Blessed Damozel. And none of our tutors could have guessed what piece of printed book would precipitate this crisis. Um, and he's he's so, like I said, he's kind of indirect about this, but like, what a unique boy, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Whose mind burst into life on collision with Omar or the Blessed Damozel. Um, and he was always kind of cagey about about Rossetti's influence, despite you know these few, few instances where he explained that it was hmm. the Blessed Damozel that made him a poet. Um, maybe his most important acknowledgement of Rossetti's influence is in his 1929 essay on Dante, in which he says, "Rossetti's Blessed Damozel, first by my rapture and next by my revolt, held up my appreciation of Beatrice by many years." Um, so he, it's kind of a backhanded compliment, really, <laughs> you know, it, before he loved Dante, he loved Rossetti and that he came to Dante through Rossetti, but in kind of an indirect way, because mm -hmm. his emotions towards Rossetti were so powerful. Um, first, you know, his adoration, his first, his rapture, and then his revolt. Yeah, it's like you can feel the tension there. <laughs> a huge tension, right? Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, if we have time, well, I, I can give you some examples of what his revolt sounded like. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so then actually late in life, he he started being a little bit more open about his his youth and, and the influences that made him a poet. Um, so in 1938, he gave a, a prize day speech to girls in Cornwall at a school in Cornwall. And he said, I remember very clearly my amazement at about 14 in finding for myself poetry that I was really excited over. There was a great deal in that, in the fact of picking up some book which nobody had ever told one to read, a book about which one knew nothing and nothing about the author, nothing that I read in school, nothing that my family advised or exhorted me to read, nothing that was recommended to me served the purpose of what I found for myself. Byron and Shelley, Omar Khayyam, Rossetti, Swinburne, and smaller men too, like Ernest Dowson. I seemed to get suddenly a personal intimacy with these poets whom I read for myself, and perhaps the feeling that some of them would not be approved by my elders added to the pleasure. <laughs> so there he's he's kind of representing his his reading of Rossetti as an as an adolescent act of rebellion. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and, and he's kind of inconsistent because in, in another place, he says that it was only Rossetti and not Swinburne or any other um, authors of the 1880s or 90s that that had a, a real influence on him. So, you know, he's inconsistent uh, on that point, but mm -hmm. consistent that it was, you know, that Rossetti was really important. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I think these these passages show that we have kind of discounted the influence of Rossetti on, on Eliot's poetry, um, but that's partly because of his slighting references 
um, to Victorian literature throughout his career. So, you know, how did this happen? Well, I think it's it's not very well known that in at the turn of the century in the U.S., Rossetti was one of the most popular poets. How was it? Like, it's the first time I hear about it. As, as yeah, well, it's yeah. just, so, it's so <laughs> surprising because he died in 1882 yeah. and you're thinking, well, St. Louis, that's just out. I mean, Eliot yeah. referred, we think of this of St. Louis now as the Midwest, but mm-hmm. in those days it was thought of as the the southwest in other words Mm -hmm. like that's as far as you could get (laughs) (laughs) and um and it just seems like the outback um and it in a sense it was because you know Rossetti's fame had spread widely you know before this during you know during his lifetime but ideas and tastes moved slowly across the Atlantic or moved slowly at that time and um you know there were many lavish editions of Rossetti's work mm. being published at the turn of the century. At, at one time, I I counted them, but I can't remember <laughs> what it was, what that number was. But um, James McNeil Whistler said that Rossetti was king until 1912. Mm-hmm. Um, so, in, in a sense, it's although Eliot says you know he found Rossetti on his own, it's not that surprising that um, he he found the Blessed Demoiselle. Yeah, of course, but at the same time, like. Uh, because of his kind of like his family uh, because of his family background and whatever so at the same time it was kind of a reward again his um yeah kind of like his family traditions or more his parents maybe because like I know that he had like a very for those who might not know like like a strict a very strict maybe family would you say or so maybe Rossetti wasn't precisely something their parents would recommend like a young boy to read? Yeah, that's a great question, Esther. And I am I think Elliot might be exaggerating a bit that his parents, you know, that Rossetti was someone that his parents wouldn't have recommended mm-hmm. or that, you know, Approval, didn't, yeah. it, it was not brought into his house by any mm-hmm. other way. Because there, he did actually have a um, significant family connection to the Pre-Raphaelites, which was oh. his kinsman, Charles Eliot Norton, was a friend um, of Rossetti and other Pre-Raphaelites. Um, and he translated the Divine Comedy. In, and that was the translation that was used in, in the United mm-hmm. States in the you know, later 19th century, and he actually founded the American Dante Society. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, so, so, you know, Eliot depicts his discovery of Rossetti and of Dante as being like these unique engagements. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, when we discover a literary work or a poet at that age, it does feel like it's your, it's your own. And that, that private relationship is really important, but actually, you know, I'd be stunned if Rossetti's works were not in his family's home. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, <laughs> and uh, just because of their popularity, but also because of this family connection. Um, and, you know, it's it's just interesting that that Eliot, as a modern Dante, like the modern inheritor mm-hmm. of Dante, so completely wiped out Charles Eliot Norton, <laughs> who <laughs> like, founded Dante Studies in the U.S., um, but that, that's another one of those historical ironies. <laughs> so I thought we could dwell a little bit on the Blessed Damoiselle and how it influenced Eliot because, um, you know, the, the the listeners, you guys out there, um, probably know this poem really well. And because, it, you know, it's, it's, it's Rossetti's, probably his most famous work. Mm-hmm. Um, the yeah. Raphaelite scholar Jerome McGann calls it his single most important composition, and it remained at the center of his creativity throughout his career. Um, and I would say that's perhaps similar to the role that it played in, in Eliot's creativity. Um, and it was it's it's sort of a unique poem in El- in Rossetti's oeuvre because well one for one thing he wrote it when he was eighteen amazing. Um, <laughs> It's a picture poem. I mean, we think of it that way now, but the the painting, he, he painted it, the, the Blessed Demoiselle, 20 years after he wrote the poem. Or maybe actually 30, because it was written in 46. Um, so 
it's it just has this amazingly powerful visual imagery that inspired other people, but also mm-hmm. Rosetti himself um, um, to create this p- painting, which then increased the mystique and the fame of the poem. Um, so that first stanza of the Blessed Demoiselle um, reimagines, and I mean, the whole poem reimagines Dante's Beatrice after her death in this kind of mm, secular religion of love, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we meet her in embodied form, although she's in heaven. The Blessed Demoiselle leaned out from the gold bar of heaven. Her eyes were deeper than the depth of waters stilled at even. She had three lilies in her hand, and the stars in her hair were seven. In, in this, this image of the beautiful woman uh, leaning on the gold bar of heaven, which later in the poem, Rossetti suggests that her arms are, are warming this bar. <laughs> so it's, it's a very transcendent image, and yet Rossetti adds all these details to make it very physical. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have... The Blessed Demoiselle, and she has lilies in her hand and stars in her hair. And these three elements, the, the flowers, the hair, and the celestial light, um, really imprinted, I guess, on Eliot's imagination. Um, so just for example, Eliot wrote uh, a poem called La Filia que Piange, the, the Girl Who Weeps. Um, interesting that he chose to title it in Italian. In Italian, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, in in uh, 19, 1912, I believe. Um, and it has kind of a similar image in it. Stand on the highest pavement of the stair, lean on a garden urn, weave, weave the sunlight in your hair, clasp your flowers to you with a pained surprise fling them to the ground and turn with a fugitive resentment in your eyes, but weave, weave the sunlight in your hair. Uh, so, you know, just for starters, you've got the hair and the flowers and the celestial light, the sunlight hair, um, which uh, Eliot returns to throughout his career um, to s- symbolize a Beatrician lady who is desirable yet inaccessible, which that's a combination he found truly irresistible. Um, and he says, the poet says at the end of the poem, she compelled my imagination many days, many days and many hours, her hair over her arms and her arms full of flowers. So Elliot's only 22 at this point, but, and, but what he says is, is totally true. She, this did compel his imagination, <laughs> you know, for a really mm-hmm. long time, not a specific woman, living woman at this moment, but the blessed demoiselle herself. Mm-hmm. it's fascinating to see like the they're kind of like I don't know if the same imagery but the same themes coming up very as you said before like the the image of the of the hair and even the she's like leaning on something yeah it's fascinating to see the connections there it's like it really um struck Elliot I guess and he it, he kept that in mind that image the whole time yeah yeah absolutely um and i mean there's 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 other elements of this image as mm-hmm. well that are kind of disturbingly similar to <laughs> to the blessed damsel i mean disturbing in the context of the poem which it kind of takes pleasure in seeing a, a woman in emotional pain, <laughs> right? The pain surprise, the resentment in your eyes. Um, and, and that's something that he takes away from the Blessed Damoiselle where it doesn't feel, that poem does not feel like the exploitation of emotional pain, although it, hmm. it might be um, at some level. But um, it's more because in that, in that poem, there's a, a, a lover who's down on the ground um, envisioning his beloved. And so he's in emotional pain too. And this is something that they share, although they're separated. But in Eliot's poem, the speaker is just sort of making use of this image of the woman in emotional pain to um, create a poem, basically. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and, and this is, like I said, an early poem for Eliot, but sort of charts a, a, a progress for him throughout his career and, and throughout his life too. Um, and we'll, we'll talk more in a moment about Emily Hale, but this is, this is a moment in his life when he, he has actually met this, the young woman, Emily Hale, who he would mm -hmm. come, who he would fall in love with. And I don't know if he was in love with her yet at that time, but the La Filia K. Pianger shows those, his, his obsession with Rossetti coming together with, you know, his nascent sensibility as a, as a man and, and how those Rossetti is just going to play a really important role in, in his emotional life. Mm -hmm. um, and so probably the most famous appearance of this demoiselle-like figure in Eliot's poetry is in The Wasteland, his most famous poem. Um, of course we had to talk about it, yeah. <laughs> of course, we were going to get to The Wasteland, um, and we did so pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. uh, and and it's actually the moment of, I think a lot of readers would agree, greatest emotional intensity in the poem, which is the Hyacinth Garden. Hmm. And this is a a moment that is autobiographical in the poem. The poem obviously has a lot of literary illusions that people like to um, yeah. you know, get into and, and yeah. think about. It has philosophy, has religion, has a lot of you know descriptions of modernity and reflections on modernity, World War One. I. I mean, you name it, it's in that poem. <laughs> the poem is also very autobiographical and, and that's how Eliot later in life described it. Um, and this moment in particular is drawn from life, but it is also like everything in Eliot's work drawn from literature. So here you see Eliot imagining his own life as, as an, as an episode in, in a Rossetti poem, if you will. So here's the, the passage. You gave me hyacinths first a year ago. They called me the hyacinth girl. Uh, those lines are in quotation marks. So we know this is someone else speaking, not the poet, and, and it's a woman. And then the poet's voice comes back in without quotation marks. Yet when we came back late from the hyacinth garden, your arms full and your hair wet, I could not speak and my eyes failed. I was neither living nor dead and I knew nothing, looking into the heart of light, the silence. So here the flowers are hyacinths, the hair is wet, very erotic, um, and the light um, here's almost supernatural, the heart of light. So you can see those Rossettian elements there, and yet the passage is incredibly personal, describing this a moment of truth between himself and the woman he loved, Emily Hale. She was a friend of his cousin, Eleanor Hinckley, and he he became um, sort of conscious of being in love with her in 1913, as he as he told her later, after going to see Tristan and Isolde together <laughs> at the Boston <laughs> Opera. And of course, that's when you fall in love because it's just amazingly passionate music. Um, and it's sort of, it's one of the oddities of his relationship with Hale that he imagined her both as Isolde and as Beatrice. And you would think that those two roles are kind of incompatible. <laughs> you know, Beatrice being this um, divine, uh, sort of semi-divine figure, very inaccessible, and, and Isolde being um, just a very eroticized woman um, who commits adultery. So he, he so he, as I said, he was in love with her in 1913. In the spring of 1914, he he prepared to leave the United States for Europe. Um, very unfortunately timed, August 1914. Yeah, <laughs> <and> <laughs> World War One, and he was not to return um, to St. Louis. Uh, I, I think, but he he never returned to St. Louis. Um, but he 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 did not come back to the United States for uh, except for one short visit until the 1930s, um, and he did not declare himself to Hale and he did not ask her to wait for him uh, before he left. So that was kind of the end of things for them, but he could have, that was, it was a moment when he could have 
change the course of his life. Uh, they did later become romantically involved in the 1930s. And Elliot wrote over a thousand letters to her, which were recently unsealed. Mm -hmm. um, this was a huge event in, in Elliot's yeah. studies. Um, yeah, I can't imagine. And you were there, you were one of the ones. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and anyone who's interested actually in this story, uh, Lyndall Gordon has told it really beautifully in her book, The Hyacinth Girl. Yeah, um, absolutely recommended. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really great. And yeah. and so and the book is called The Hyacinth Girl because Elliot reveals to her in the first letter that he wrote to her in this long sequence uh, that that she was the hyacinth girl. Um, and this passage in the poem recalls a moment when he almost spoke spoke his heart to her on a spring evening after bringing her home from a tea party that he had organized for the express purpose of seeing her. Hmm. And this was the might have been of his life. I think, you know, as, as the years passed, he, he, he kind of obsessed about this moment where he might have, um, you know, as I said, changed the course of his life by telling her that he loved her. Now we don't really know what she would have done and it's possible she would have said no. Right. But <laughs> he mythologized this moment yeah, as you moment. can see mm -hmm. in, in the poem. And, um, I think it, knowing how autobiographical the passage is helps us understand how Eliot was intertwining life and art because we also see these Rosettian elements. And, you know, he, he imagined Hale as the Blessed Damoiselle. And I think he, he really imagined her more as the Blessed Damoiselle than as Beatrice because his imaginations of her are very erotic and they were romantically involved in, in his letters. Uh, really dwell on her physical beauty uh, as well as her you know his the beauty of spirit that he saw in her yeah that's a very interesting point in fact because yeah it gets uh, I guess that Emily Hale gets compared a lot to Dante's uh, Beatrice of course but now that you say that um, there might be more in common with Rossetti's um, Blessed uh, Damoiselle it's actually true. Like you can see that it's very interesting to take that, yeah, into yeah, in consideration because it's yeah. really nice. Yeah, I mean, because Beatrice is is pretty disembodied, um, you know, uh, for Dante, mm -hmm. um, and I mean, not to get off track, but I think <laughs> Eliot's imagination was sort of it was both fed and at some level sort of. Oh, flummoxed by the fact that Hale continued to live and have her own life, you know, mm -hmm. her own existence in America, um, independent of whatever Elliot thought or imagined or did. And so, um, you know, ultimately this, this became sort of a tragic collision in their lives that, you know, that she had this independent existence. And when he confessed his love for her and, she wanted it to go somewhere <laughs> but that was not how the the love for the blessed damoiselle works right the blessed damoiselle is always there she's preserved as this young beautiful woman um who is fully embodied but but inaccessible mm -hmm. so but this construction of hale as a beloved um in a in a rosettian mold uh, became central to his poet creativity. Yeah. Um, but just to go back to the Blessed Damoiselle, because there's so much that Eliot learned from this poem beyond mm -hmm. the image of the of the woman. Um, and it's an, and Rossetti's direct appeal to the senses, which I think uh, that's something that Eliot does too, mm -hmm. very deliberately and powerfully. Um, but Rossetti also deploys a very original storytelling technique in this poem which combines dramatic monologue, which is, you know, a single speaker, single poetic speaker telling about themselves um, in ballad style narrative. So of course, um, Rossetti wrote a lot of ballads and ballads are basically narrative poems that include speech, you know, quoted speech, um, but also description and, and, and a kind of objective storytelling. So, um, again, Jerome again, uh, my source for a lot of this and and all the you Rossetti fans out there probably know about the wonderful Rossetti archive 
that was that McGann created um, digital archive. Um, but McGann explains how Rossetti represents Beatrice from a triple standpoint, her mm -hmm. own perspective, which through her speech, then her lover's vision below on earth. And, and it's a very, as I said, detailed vision um, contained in his thoughts and then his self-conscious reflection on the situation um, that he's in, which is in parentheses. So there's quotation marks and then there's mm -hmm. straight narration and there's parenthetical uh, commentary from the lover. So just for example, I'm drawing from the last two stanzas of the poem. She gazed and listened and then said, less sad of speech than mild. So there's the narration. Then quotation marks, all this is when he comes. She ceased. There's a direct quotation of the lady. Um, and now comes the vision. The light thrilled towards her, filled with angels in strong level flight. Her eyes prayed and she smiled. Then the last stanza starts with this parenthetical um, sentence, parenthetical thought from the lover, I saw her smile. So that's his sort of, his report, his reporting of his own experiences. But mm -hmm. soon their path was vague in distant spheres. This is the angels. And then she cast her arms along the golden barriers and laid her face between her hands and wept. So this is, it's a kind of a combination of a vision and narrative. And then the last words of the poem, again, in parentheses, I heard her tears. So, you know, Rossetti's genius is to make this really complicated and somewhat improbable setup seem totally natural. Right? <laughs> How does the lover know what the, what his beloved is, is saying and, and let alone feeling, mm -hmm. um, but it's the beloved's embodiment that makes it all possible. Her arms, the golden bar, her gown, her tears. Um, and similarly, in, in the Hyacinth Garden passage in the Wasteland, Eliot quotes the speech of his beloved, they call me the Hyacinth girl, while framing it with a narrative. The poet says, yet when we came back late from the Hyacinth Garden, and he interweaves that with his own private experience. I was neither living nor dead and I knew nothing. And a vividly sketched dream vision looking into the heart of light, the silence. So you can see how much he learned from reading Rossetti. Like I really do believe that poets early obsessions and attachments are, they just radiate through everything that they do in the rest of their That's career, right. even if they, eventually tire of that poet mm -hmm. <laughs> and on, as Elliot at least claimed to um what they learn is is permanent and and you can really see that and 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 Elliot used this complicated narrative structure in many poems like in portrait of a lady um for example which is a really kind of an inversion of the blessed demoiselle this is a poem he wrote mm -hmm. in um 1910 to 11. Uh, it was published in Proofrock and Other Observations. Uh, and it, the poem represents a woman who is all too present <laughs> and the poet or male speaker wants to keep her at arm's length. And he uses the Rossettian narrative structure to do that, right? By actually, in, whereas uh, Rossetti is trying to draw the Blessed Demoiselle nearer to him, takes someone who is far away, i.e. dead, and tries to bring her more more close through this narrative structure, Eliot takes a woman who in the like setup of the poem is right there and he tries to push her away uh, by quoting her um, in quoting her saying things that annoy him <laughs> and then silently undermining and belittling her while using her distress to help him explore his own states of mind and basically write a poem. Um, yeah. So, um, this is in some ways just like, as I said, an inversion of a portrait of a lady. And like La Filia Capianger, the male speaker slash poet is stage managing a spectacle as an occasion, a spectacle of a woman in emotional pain for unfolding his own psychic state. Um, so that, as I said, that's one of the things that Elliot seemed to have learned from. <laughs> um, and 
you know, if if Elliot had only engaged with the Blessed Demoiselle in Portrait of a Lady and La Filia, I think, you know, that connection would still be significant, but not central to his work as a poet. Um, but really, this is only the first phase. And I think what we see in Portrait is what he what he refers to in that um, passage from his 1929 essay on Dante, his revolt against against Rossetti. So Portrait is like a, a he's revolting not against the form that he learned from Rossetti, but rather the emotions of Rossetti's poetry, the nice. um, which he had come to view as you know sentimental, um, and and replacing those emotions with irony, detachment, and and even disgust. And so, I mean, disgust is one of the, is one of Eliot's hallmark, like experiences that he, he put his stamp on. And it's a real part of life. And Eliot was committed to <laughs> realism in poetry, I guess. And, <laughs> um, and I'm, I'm sure that he felt disgust a lot. He seems like he, he was very, he was fastidious and, and also had these periods of time when he he had trouble feeling right he did not mm -hmm. when you read his letters to Emily Hill you actually feel like he he had a diet must have had some kind of diagnosable condition literally that he just he was not uh, he was not uh, he was not emotionally whole like he just had trouble mm -hmm. sympathizing and connecting with people mm -hmm. yeah. um so to some extent, I wonder if reading Rossetti was like gave him emotions that he felt he ought to have and that like allowed him to feel somewhat more normal as a person. Um, but by the time he's writing portrait, he's sort of embracing the feelings that he that he has, irony and detachment and so on. Um, and and while using the, the strategies that he learned from Rossetti. But, you know, when you when you bring the wasteland into this picture, you see that uh, it's much more complicated than than that, because he's using he's coming back to this Rosettian imagery for a moment of real emotional intensity. Mm -hmm. um, and he, he kind of led up to the wasteland, it didn't pop out of out of thin air, obviously, <laughs> you know, in, in many ways. Um, but just in terms of his preparation for writing that poem, he actually like many of us, uh, started his career by teaching English courses that he was kind of unprepared for. And then he, he learned a lot by teaching them. So he, he taught a modern literature class in 1917. Um, and then in 1918, a class that went much farther back in time and um, where he read a lot of Renaissance poetry and drama. And in both classes, he assigned Rossetti. <laughs> <laughs> he assigned Rossetti, um, you know, as a modern poet. And then he also assigned Rossetti's translations um, mm -hmm. of Italian poets. So um, in in The Wasteland, you can see his extensive knowledge of Rossetti coming into play, um, even before the Hyacinth Garden passage, actually on the very first page of the poem. Uh, again, this is just like... A thing about Eliot that is seems to be completely unknown, although it's documented in, in the notes to the mm -hmm. poem uh, by Christopher Ricks. Um, but the epigraph of the poem, famously in a Latin and Greek uh, from yeah. the <laughs> um, which is um, a five-volume <laughs> uh, Latin novel um, that Eliot, you know, he said later that he read it, but there's no way that he just dove into that long work and picked out this particular <laughs> passage without some help. And in fact, it was Rossetti who provided him with this quotation. So um, Rossetti originally chose it and translated it into English. He actually um, translated it both into prose and into verse. And it was um, collected with his posthumous works. Mm -hmm. um, so, so the, I'll just give the prose translation and the Sybil, you know, I saw her with my own eyes at Cumai hanging in a jar. And when the boys asked her, what would you Sybil? She answered, I would die. Um, so Elliot later 
this was pointed out to Elliot later, and he <laughs> responded that, I think it is quoted somewhere by Dante Gabriel Rossetti, but at the same time, I must defend my use of the quotation by saying that I have read the Satyricon or most of it, which obviously does not prove anything since he might have read the Satyricon because Rossetti translated <laughs> this intriguing passage about the Sibyl. And, um, you know, at this moment, Eliot's emotional attachment to Rossetti um, is actually kind of like the Sybil herself, like shrunken and disillusioned, but still alive. <laughs> and, and I think it's uh, sort of interesting that there's a lot, there continues to be confusion when people talk about the Eliot's epigraph to the wasteland about whether the Sybil is confined in a jar or a cage. Um, and and Rossetti, I think that is because Rossetti translated the passage in, in two different ways. In one, he uses the word jar and the other cage. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is like, in some ways, sort of just a private message to Rossetti uh, <laughs> that, that no one else could have been expected to to pick up. No, it's just uh, fascinating uh, hearing all these things, all these connections that... Um... Like, to be honest, I myself didn't even see it <laughs> uh, now. But um, it's kind of, yeah, like, what a coincidence, right? That he chose to, yeah, that epigraph for the, yeah, the wasteland. Yeah, that, um, so at first, the, at the very first uh, pages, they chose that. Um, something which, as you just explained, that's something that Rossetti had translated in two different ways. So it's kind of like, Again, like you can see, like the tension all the time. Like he's attracted to the city, but he doesn't want to, people to know that he is. Uh, it's like yes, but no, no, yes. Um, <laughs> the conflicting emotions there. Yeah, absolutely. Like I mean, Eliot had these relationships with other poets as well. Um, yeah. But I think maybe none so intensely. <laughs> like I mean, and and he's just summarized it in those words: rapture and revolt. Like, and I think mm-hmm. that. You know, the more I study the chronology of these references, the more I think that the rapture and the revolt were often simultaneous, right? Like he, it wasn't like there was a specific period <laughs> in which the rapture ended and the revolt began, and then the revolt ended. <laughs> I, I think that he often felt both of these things at once, which you know, once, yeah. we often feel mm-hmm. um, conflicting emotions. Um, but I do have this theory that um, Eliot changed his mind, gradually changed his mind about Rossetti, you know, after this initial revolt period, like that is reflected in Portrait of a Lady. Um, af- so that he, he, Eliot's life changed radically in 1915 uh, when he married um, Vivian Haywood. Um, and, and my theory is that he gradually entered a, uh, sort of a dark place in his life where he began mm-hmm. to see how intertwined life and art were even beyond what he had already made of it in his poetry. Um, you know, when the early poetry in, in Prufrock and Other Observations, he's really like much more in control of his life. He's, he's more of an observer. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's a poem, of, it's a book of observations. But then he begins drawn into this drama that he never intended. And that makes him gradually see see um, similarities between his own life and Rossetti's that that really never ended. <laughs> um, so like Rossetti, he did not marry the first woman he was attracted to, who was Jane Morris in Rossetti's case and Emily Hale in Eliot's case. Rather, both men entered complicated and ultimately destructive marriages. And the destructive factor in both cases was substance abuse. Uh, and this is something that is is known about Rossetti, but not so well known about Eliot. In fact, mm-hmm. anyone who really wants to dig into the weeds on this, I, I have another book to recommend, which is Anne Pasternak Slater's biography of Vivian Haywood, which um, just lays out a lot of new information about Eliot's wife. And I think the most important, you know, discovery that she makes is that Vivian had been using addictive medications since she was a teenager. So long mm-hmm. before she met Elliot, um, she she was prescribed um, some pain medications when she was under a doctor's care for TB of the bone. And 
she just moved from one substance to another throughout her life. And the main substance she was addicted to was chloral hydrate, which was commonly used for um, sleeping and, and as an anti-anxiety drug. Um, it was the drug that, that Rossetti himself used. Um, but she also used ether and a variety of other drugs. And of course, as you know, Elizabeth Siddall used laudanum and died of an overdose. Mm -hmm. And Elliot would have been aware of this from reading Rossetti's biography, which he included in his 1917 modern literature syllabus. Um, so as he gradually became aware of Vivian's condition, which I think she tried to conceal from him, but you know, eventually it just wasn't possible. He he began to understand further similarities between himself and Rossetti that would have taken him to a dark place. Um, mm -hmm. And I think the wasteland shows this realization. Again, we learn we've learned a lot about this period in his life from his letters to Emily Hale. And he said that he told her that a year after he married Vivian, he awoke to what he had done and experienced guilt and despair that only increased throughout the following decade because he felt responsible for marrying a woman that he did not love. And he felt he had um, wronged her in this way, but he also felt betrayed by her since it was clear that she did not love him. Mm -hmm. um, and because she had this substance abuse that, issue that he didn't, didn't know about when he married her. And also because she probably, well, we know that she she was unfaithful to Elliot at least one time uh, with Bertrand Russell. And he learned mm -hmm. about this most likely in 1919, which was the year of his father's death. And this precipitated the, the nervous breakdown, but also the intense period of creativity that, that um, resulted in the wasteland. Mm -hmm. um, so Vivian appears in the wasteland that's well known in a game of chess. Um, but I think what's not so well known is how just as he imagines um, Emily Hale as as a blessed damosel, he, he also imagines Vivian as as Lady Lilith. Um, mm -hmm. right. <laughs> <that> she is <laughs> the opening uh, verse paragraph of a game of chess is basically in in my reading, uh, you know, an ekphrasis of, mm. of Rossetti's painting of Lady Lilith, um, which which Rossetti began in 1864 with Fanny Cornforth as his model and completed in 1868. And then you may know he repainted it in mm -hmm. 1872 yeah. with the head of Alexa Wilding. Um, and he said about this painting, it represents a modern Lilith combing out her abundant golden hair and gazing on herself in the glass with that self-absorption by whose strange fascination such natures draw others within their own circle. And he wrote the sonnet Body's Beauty to accompany it, which just became one of his most famous picture sonnets. And I'll just read a tiny bit of that just to refresh <laughs> your memories. Um, he says, Adam's wife, first wife, Lilith, sits young while the earth is old and subtly of herself contemplative draws men to watch the bright web she can weave till heart and body and life are in its hold and the sonnet ends lo as that youth's eyes burned at thine so went thy spell through him and left his straight neck bent and round his heart one strangling golden hair so um, this image of a woman's hair strangling the young man, I think was very powerful to Elliot. Um, as we've seen, you know, he's kind of obsessed with hair. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's not just in the poems about women. Prufrock is worries that his hair is thinning. Mm -hmm. um, in, in the wasteland, this Lilith figure who is, seems to be it's kind of based on, on his wife sitting at a, at her dressing table, she's she's brushing her hair, and her hair glows out in fiery points mm -hmm. <laughs> um, as she begins to speak. So he's making that direct connection between the, her hair and her speech. You know, if you if any if you guys out there are uh, really want to get into the weeds on Rosetti's on <laughs> influence on Elliot, I won't go into it today. But he wrote a two picture sonnets early in his career in 1909 actually he was in college published them in the harvard advocate 
One is called Circe's Palace, which is an imitation of Rossetti's For the Wine of Circe by Edward Byrne Jones. And the other one, which I think is, is really fascinating and actually set me on this path originally, <laughs> is called On a Portrait. And it's it, it's like Eliot's early thinking through of Lady Lilith. Um, and it is a picture sonnet. It's an ekphrasis of Edward Monet's painting, Young Woman of 1868, um, with a lot of echoes of body's beauty. And it has this um, woman self-contemplative as she stands. Um, he writes, um, no meditations glad or ominous disturb her lips or move the slender hands. Her dark eyes keep their secrets hid from us beyond the circle of our thoughts she stands. So um, he's he's kind of trying to do this, trying to evoke this, the same kind of woman that is depicted in Lady Lilith. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And describes her as a pensive lamia, which is not that different from, from a Lilith, you know, a sort of treacherous mm-hmm. woman who's about to get you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, just the if you go back to the opening first paragraph of a game of chess, which is the second part of the wasteland, um, many of the elements described or evoked in this description of the dressing room are seem like they could be taken from Lady Lilith. For example, um, a glass held up by standards wrought with fruited vines from which a golden cupidon peeped out, another hid his eyes behind his wing, doubled the flames of seven-branched candelabra, reflecting light upon the table. Um, So as in Rossetti's painting, there's a mirror supported by, or somehow attached to candlesticks. Yeah. Um, And then Elliot goes on, reflecting light upon the table as the glitter of her jewels rose to meet it, from satin cases poured in rich profusion in vials of ivory and colored glass, unstoppered, lurked her strange synthetic perfumes, unguent, powdered, or, or liquid, troubled, confused, and drowned the scents and odors. So you've got these, there's a perfume bottle on, um, on the dressing table in Rossetti's painting, and here you and Elliot rep- reproduces those perfume bottles, but he gives them a very sinister cast, right? Like, yeah, <laughs> um, you don't know what's coming out of those perfume bottles, and it doesn't. It seems not like it's not good, right? <laughs> um, so, it it has the same, yeah, the same ominous, same ominous feel as as the the language of of snares and enchantments that that mm. appear in. In Rossetti's sonnet. Um, and then, and I also think there's an element of of fear in these in this in Eliot's description of you know what substances Vivian is taking from what bottles, right? That he doesn't, he probably doesn't really know. It didn't really her abuse did not come to a head until 1925. So we, you know, we don't really know what Eliot's level of consciousness was about these about her substance abuse, but, you know, he surely knew she was taking things and that her behavior sort of depended on what she took when. And she had these bottles that she needed to have refilled. And, um, you know, what's what's in those bottles, what's coming out of it, and what is it doing to us? Mm-hmm. Um, and then finally, as I said, the passage ends, under the firelight, under the brush, her hair spread out in fiery points, glowed into words, then would be savagely still. So um, Eliot's, Eliot's Lilith is entrapping him with her hair, just just like Rossetti's. Hmm. Um, so really what you get, if you know, when you start reading this poem through the lens of, of Rossetti, it's, it's like he's got soul's be- beauty and body's beauty um, pulling him in two different directions, but the you know that that feeling of enchantment <laughs> is absent right this is mm-hmm. the wasteland is a poem of disenchantment um everything that we once thought was wonderful um and magical has turned to dust and and that's that goes beyond love right there's many many 
um, aspects of modern life that Eliot diagnoses in the poem that, that seem disenchanted. The only part that is still seems enchanted is that passage in the Hyacinth Garden where he's mm-hmm. he's recalling this moment with Emily Hale um, under the sign of, of the Blessed Demoiselle. Yeah, that's that's fascinating to be honest because uh, again, this is a passage uh, from the Wasteland which is kind of very uh, kind of related to the senses because you have like all this um, the imagery um, but you also have like when it talks about the synthetic perfumes and everything, so it's very sensory. Everything's very sensory, mm. and I think I'm, I like I won't be able to read this passage again without thinking about uh, Rossetti's Lady Lilith and how you mentioned it because, yeah, it's kind of striking the yeah that the way he uses kind of similar imagery to talk about this thing, but then again, as you said, more about um entrapment kind of this figure so again you have like the difference between the depictions so alias depictions of emily hale and vivian in the wasteland i guess so completely different kind of so you have the blessed uh damosel for the, on the one hand and then lady lilith the femme fatale and so on on the other yes and um just the poet's kind of despair at ever being able to reconcile these, um, this, these binary images and and conceptions of women mm-hmm. like, yeah. that he's 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 so deeply embedded that opposition between the femme fatale and the and the blessed demoiselle in his emotional like makeup that mm-hmm. he can't you know, I mean, he did eventually have a happy marriage at the very end of his life, but it, it, it took him a very, very long time to come to a place emotionally where he could uh, bring these two images of a woman together, Mm -hmm. I guess. And, and for Rossetti, I think it it wasn't like that, right? I mean, he understood Mm -hmm. that an individual woman can have both of these aspects and that Mm -hmm. he, he, what he found so fascinating was, um, multi, multi-dimensional mm-hmm. woman who is right. I mean, his women are both masculine and uh, voluptuous, and they're both mm-hmm. dangerous and um, sort of divine at the same time. Um, whereas for Eliot, it just it just seems much more bifurcated, mm-hmm. and he's and he's sort of floundering between them. Um, so, yeah, I mean. It's just so interesting to see how Rossetti's work was absorbed by a mind that is, you know, arguably one of the 20th century's most <laughs> creative, yeah. um, you know, creative people, creative uh, poets, and how deeply he absorbed Rossetti and at some level, perhaps how damaging that was, and yet how um how productive it was for him as a poet that you can't once you know these things you can't really imagine Eliot being a poet at all without <laughs> the this grain of inspiration that entered his life when he was 14 and just sort of bloomed and expanded in different yeah. ways throughout his career yeah for sure so thank you thank you very much for that uh Francis because I think that yeah, who knows? Like after this, like when people kind of uh, reread their Eliot copies that they probably they have at home but never read them or haven't read them recently, um, I'm sure we will get lots of connections over there. So thank you for that because that was that was brilliant <laughs> to be honest. And it's, yeah, it was really it was really fascinating to to learn more about the connections and to see that how deeply. Um, it uh, Rossetti's kind of influenced Eliot all throughout his life in his work. Yeah, it's well, I just appreciate so much having the chance to talk about this um, really fascinating topic and and two of my favorite poets. Maybe someday we'll we'll come back and and talk about um, the rest of Eliot's uh, career 
because he didn't yes. you know, didn't end with the wasteland and, mm-hmm. and actually there's a whole nother chapter um to be talked about with with emily and four quartets and four quartets yeah for sure that we definitely should have another episode just on that because that's well we are seeing that like there are lots of things to talk about yeah absolutely around this topic so we should do we should definitely do that again yeah and talk about that that would be great (laughs) well great to talk to you and yeah, great um, to talk to you as well. Thank you very much for accepting our invitation again. Thank you for being here today. And I hope like all our listeners out there really enjoyed this episode, which I'm sure they have, <laughs> because it was really great. So thank you very much, Francis, again. Um, and yeah, hopefully um, see you very soon <laughs> for another episode. And good. yeah, and thank you everyone for tuning in and to listen um, for listening to our episode today. So thank you. Bye, everyone. Bye.